In August 1976, I arrived in America for the first time. You were in the throes of the Democratic Convention nominating the governor of Georgia as their candidate for president. And America had just won a bunch of gold medals in the Summer Olympics, including one for basketball. And the coach of that team was Dean Smith, who was the coach of the University of North Carolina, which I'd come to attend. And four of the starters were from that team. And I didn't know a thing about basketball. I knew about netball, which I knew to be a girls' game. And I wasn't terribly interested in basketball, but I was taken to one game and became a kind of convert. And, and, I, and I love it, but I will say that, that it was a sign of maturity when I got to the point where I realized that I didn't have to have my week ruined if Carolina lost a game. <laughs> now, I bring this up because there was a bar in Chapel Hill which was kind of a mystery to me. It was called the Four Corners, and it was named for a strategy that this coach used in basketball to win games. He, he used the rules to win games, and he pushed the rules. And what it meant was four players in the corners of the court passing it back and forth, stopping the other team getting the ball for as long as necessary, and if there was an opening, throwing it to Phil Ford, who more often than not scored. It was a really slow, really boring thing to watch. <laughs> and, and it was about winning. And even Dean Smith said, well, as long as these are the rules, I'm going to use them. But he advocated for a shot clock, which eventually was introduced, which meant you couldn't use that strategy anymore, and the rules made it more fun for everybody. So I've been thinking about rules and thinking about the place of rules and how we manage rules and how rules, how we tend to find our best selves and our worst selves coming out when we think about these rules. At best, we want the rules to make the playing field fair. We want everybody to have fun. We want things to be expansive. And at worst, we want to keep our advantage. We want to make sure we're winning. We want to make sure nobody's taking away our way of being. And this, this debate goes back and forth and back and forth, and rules change because norms change and society changes. But within us, there's that dance between wanting everybody to have what is good for them and wanting to make sure that we don't lose our advantage wherever we find it. You see this in the debate about regulation where at best regulations, and they need to change from time to time about leveling the playing field for everybody. And other times, it's about making sure that your advantage doesn't mean that everybody has to be bored silly in a game. This rules thing affects all of us because we start paying attention to what the rules are in the various ways we organize life. Theology now, you might get 20 pages of theology with 300 pages justifying the methodology because if you don't justify the methodology, someone will attack you in your conclusion. See how the rules affect the outcome very often. And we're getting very sophisticated about all of that. And so frequently, at our worst, when we need to be in control, when we're feeling we might be losing something, we tend as a society to start being very rigid about the rules. And then we take it one step further with religion, and suddenly the rules are declared by God. And we claim that God is saying that our rules are the way, and that God is saying that our rules are not only the way, but they're the way for everybody. 
and that our rules are truth and that our truth is the only way. It's an extension of what happens when we start paying attention to the rules and when the bad stuff starts coming out. Now, Christians have been inundated with that kind of theology. I think I hear it in our collect today, with that kind of, this is the way. Salvation is all about this one thing. Turn or burn. Inquisitions, crusades, and so on. We have a long history of this stuff, and we ought not be surprised when we learn about an ethno-religious group that none of us had heard of three weeks ago, the Yazidis in Kurdistan. They apparently are accused of being devil worshippers. They're accused of being polytheists. It's not entirely clear that either of those are true accusations. They have some bizarre origin myths, but probably no more bizarre than ours. And one man was quoted as saying before he was rescued that a gun was being held to his head by a terrorist saying, convert or die. And the theology underlying that out of Islam, Islam at its best makes good room for the religions that predate Islam, namely the Abrahamic faiths, Christianity, Judaism. But anyone else, fair game. And so if you're trying to create a pure Muslim state, you might have to make some allowances for Christians and Jews, damn it. But everyone else, convert or die. We want a pure Muslim state. That's the theology that's going on. We've got it in our history. We're seeing it in their history. And it's just plumb wrong. But it leaves a challenge for us. In Romans 11, we see Paul wrestling with the status of Jews. Now, some people say he's not writing just about Jews. He's writing about converted Jews. Other people say he's arguing that the Jews have a special relationship with God and do not need to become followers of the way. That's called the two-covenant theory. Some Christians have said it's anti-Semitic to try and convert the Jews. Others say, no, no, it's anti-Semitic not to care enough about the Jews to want them to have the great good news of Jesus. Now it goes back and forth, and it's to some degree driven by this stuff that we all have, where on one hand, we want everything to be good for everyone, and on the other hand, we want to be secure in ourselves. And it's a problem. You see the same debate coming out in most of the commentary on the Syrophoenician or the Canaanite woman who comes to Jesus. And Jesus says he's only come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. How do we navigate? How do we navigate these exclusive claims that we know to lead to such wrong things. St. Paul elsewhere says, what is good is you, by their fruits you shall know them. Is it, does the, are the fruits love and joy and peace and goodwill and expanding possibilities for everyone after the nature and image of God who is love, who is made for love, who makes us for love and brings new, ever new possibilities into being? Or is it about something that gets pinched and broken and coercive and controlling, which is not of God? How do we navigate if we say Christianity is clearly not the only way and at the same time have an urgent invitation for those who are lost or broken or troubled to join us in a community of faith? See, I want Jews to be the best Jews they can be and Muslims to be the best Muslims they can be. But I want the lost 
and the broken and the, the wishy-washy and the unsure and the uncommitted to be invited into life. And life is expressed by Jesus when he says, the kingdom of God is in your midst. God is present in your midst. And when you recognize that, there are extraordinary consequences. There's judgment and forgiveness and healing and hope and purpose and all kinds of possibilities for love and community and generativity and creativity. And we've so often read Jesus through the lens of Paul and Plato. We have a history of trying to limit salvation to one thing. It's about forgiveness. Get forgiven and you're saved. Or it's about what happens when you die. Love Jesus, go to heaven. It's that kind of appeal, which I get. It's why many of our friends say 12-step groups are so much more powerful than church. Because salvation is clear. Salvation is literal. Take that drink or die. Don't take that drink and live, and here's a community that will support you. I get that. But that's not saying the kingdom, the fullness of what Jesus says when he proclaims the kingdom of God, the rule of God, the presence of God, the grace of God is in your midst. And it changes everything for those who perceive it. And the invitation to join us is therefore urgent for those who are lost or broken or in need. See, it's not, we're not making exclusive claims we're hearing an exclusive claim on our lives. We're hearing an invitation to follow Jesus that is compelling enough that we organize our lives around this community of practice that are the followers of Jesus. The problem is exclusive claims. The possibility is exclusive loyalty. Our loyalty is exclusive to a community of practice and meaning as followers of Jesus. And when we know that to be life-giving, then we can, with confidence, invite others to join us in this life-giving way that we have been granted by grace. We do not need to condemn. We need to bear witness. We do not need to coerce. We need to invite and we can do that as a matter of urgency for a human world in terrible need. The good news is that the kingdom is among us. We invite one another and those not yet here to join us as followers of Jesus around the table. And when they hear that, when they hear that invitation and respond, then they too can make an exclusive commitment, just like marriage. It's counterintuitive but it's liberating. The commitment leads us into the way, and that is grace, and that is good news. Exclusive claims, bad. Exclusive loyalty, wonderful. Let us respond to the gospel in silence and in prayer.